This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 123 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week we are going Where to is be DevChat TV. DevChat.tv. It is uh it's in the middle of the ocean. It's on the internet. Okay. In the tube somewhere. Yeah. So this week I had kind of a different idea. I've been looking at building an iOS app for a while for DevChat.tv, which is the podcast network that this show is a part of. So if you go to iFreakShow.com, you'll notice that it has you know a lot of information about iFreaks, but at the top and the left it says devchat.tv, and if you click on shows, then there are a bunch more shows that we put on as part of the network. So I've been thinking that it would be nice to build an application that would allow people to get the episodes, you know, other than just a podcatcher. But beyond that, you know, provide ways for people to interact with the show, with the brand. You know, I'd like to get feedback on the individual episodes. People can go in and maybe rate them and say, you know, this one's my favorite or uh, maybe these ones are five-star episodes and these ones are four-star episodes and these couple that I didn't really like them, they're one or two-star episodes, you know, and I can kind of start to aggregate feedback. But the other thing is, is that I'd like to provide some extras and I'm not sure what they would be. And I think an app would be a good avenue for either providing those or for making people aware of them. And then the other thing that I need is I have a video series on Ruby on Rails that's a subscription video series. And so I would like to be able to provide that to people as part of the app so they can watch the videos. But I need some kind of method for checking that they have a subscription. And so I've only really played with iOS development. I haven't actually published any apps on the iTunes App Store, which is probably a shock to people who have been listening to this show for the last two and a half years. Or maybe not. Maybe you know that I spend most of my time writing web applications. But, you know, I'd like to jump in and, and dig in. So I'm wondering, how would you approach an application like this that provides some of these features? Hire one of us to do it. <laughs> if only you knew people that could develop iOS software. Yeah, it, it, it is really tempting. I am looking at this as kind of a larger move in my programming career, though. So I was just teasing. I think the whole idea of iFreaks is kind of to talk about different iOS development topics, sort of doing this whole app approach, talking kind of through a whole app is, is sort of an interesting idea, and especially if it helps you. So I know you just described what the app is going to do, but let's figure out where you want to start with version 1.0, because I think when you're developing an app, it's really important to figure out what is really the bare minimum that's necessary for the app and what can be left until later, because if you bite off more than you can chew at first, you end up you know, getting bogged down and never finishing. Oh, absolutely. So the basic functionality is I basically want to provide the content, including the subscription content. So I do need to be able to authenticate users against the web application. 
Okay, and how does the web application work now? How, how does authentication work now on the web? So currently, it just has a, a regular form field that, you know, you, you fill in the email address and password, and it submits through the website. I could set up an OAuth endpoint, and I can also enable HTTP basic authentication, and I don't know if either of those are really great options for this particular application. Yeah, I yes. think the main thing to do is to make things easy for the users, because yes. if, it's, if it's difficult, they're just not going to do it. So you have different signups and things like that. If it's complex, the more likely they're just going to be like, well, I don't really need this. I'm just going to go back to doing whatever. Yeah, absolutely. On the iOS app, I just want them to be able to enter their email and password and have it authenticate them. I can also build some kind of custom endpoint, but I don't know what kind of the prevailing way to do this is from iOS to, you know, some web service that has authentication information in it. I think OAuth is quite common. I also think that, especially historically, it's been kind of a pain to actually implement and sometimes has had a pretty bad user flow, but I'm not sure that that has to be true. I think that's probably what most apps are using now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess the other concern that I have there is that by adding OAuth, I complicate the authentication on devchat.tv itself. Oh, right. Well, I have to admit that this is not an area of app development that I've had to deal with very much. The apps I work on are typically not sort of heavily backed by a, right. an existing web service. So I don't, maybe James knows more than I do. Yeah, there's definitely different approaches. You know, I would just say start simple. If you can do the basic authentication right now, you know, wire it up and start doing things. See if people actually want to use this before we think through things. I mean, for OAuth, are you thinking like connecting with Facebook, their Twitter, letting them log in like that? No, or no, I haven't. Own? Yeah. It's all internal to the web application. Yeah, I'd say it's it's on your call whether you can wire that up pretty efficiently or, or not. Yeah, basic auth, HTTP basic auth is, it's like five lines of code in Rails. Right, and it's and about it, five lines of code on, on the iOS side too. Yeah, it's one line of code if you just turn it on and supply it with usernames and passwords. To get it to use the database, it's like five or six lines of code. It's not that big a deal. Yeah, I mean, as long as your info you're protecting is not really that valuable. You know, yeah. People aren't going to be terribly interested in getting at your, yeah, well, your, your data. And I can send it over HTTP and encrypt it anyway and do some smart things to make it so that it's not sniffable, at least. Mm -hmm. Use basic caution, but I don't think I'd really overdo it at the first step because, yeah. you know, as Andrew said it earlier, is like, start simple and let people use it, see if they like it. You know, if they don't like it, then you're wasting your time regardless and don't waste any more time than you have to. Yeah, that makes sense. Regarding HTTP basic authentication, iOS actually has the newer, I'm, I'm not sure about the older one, but the newer networking API in iOS, which is NSURL session, uh, has built-in support for doing basic authentication. So it's a pretty simple thing to implement. I don't think that's true of OAuth still. I think you end up using a third-party library if you don't want to do it all yourself. So yep. one thing that may be different in iOS versus web is that third-party libraries are, they're a thing on iOS, but they're not as much of a thing as they are in Ruby or mm -hmm. Node or something like that, where you just use third-party libraries everywhere. I mean, Node is third-party library itself, right? And so is Rails, but on iOS, that's a little less common. And I, I personally, I try to shy away from them. So that would be sort of a vote in favor of HTTP basic authentication. Right, because it's just built into the HTTP libraries provided by Apple. Yep.
Now, the other question I have is I would eventually like this to run on iPhones and iPads. Should I start out with just an iPhone app or should I do a universal app or? Well, that's sort of up to you. Of course, the only thing that changes that has to change is the UI because it's iOS. All the APIs are the same. Apple, especially in recent releases, Apple has included some good tools for making, even making your UI just scale on iPhone and iPad. So I think personally, it's probably easier to start with the plan that you're supporting both and just make that work from the beginning instead of going back and trying to add it later. You certainly can add it later, but I don't think it's that much work to just make it work on both. And it probably actually saves you hassle down the line. And the things you want to look at there are definitely use if you have complicated UI, you want to use auto layout for your UI. And there's a new API that sort of goes hand in hand with auto layout called size classes that lets you design your UI so that it will work on different classes of, of device. And that's even more important than just iPad versus iPhone. Size classes are also used, for example, for the new split screen multitasking on iPad. And so you, you definitely want to adopt those technologies either way. And that they enable you to make uh, an app that's universal without a whole lot of extra hassle. That makes sense. How do I decide on a starting point? I know this is kind of a more fundamental question, but when you go in to create an iOS app, you have the master detail application, the page-based application, single view application, which I don't think is what I want, and a tabbed application. Maybe the most important thing to know as a beginner is that those are just templates. You could start with any one of those and then, you know, get to any of the others just by editing the project. There's nothing right. There's nothing magic about any of them. They're just different starting points. That said, I think with any app that you're developing, it's kind of a valuable thing to sort of wireframe it or sketch it out and figure out what you want the UI to look like. And that can inform not only which of those templates you use, but the overall uh, structure of the app and which UI elements you're going to use and how the navigation flow is going to work. It's easier to sort of know that in advance than to try to kind of cobble it together or make big changes after you've gone down the wrong road. So I'm not sure that's much different than any kind of software development, web, iOS, whatever, but definitely doing wireframes and sketches is valuable. Yeah, if you have some kind of uh, interface tool like you have in Xcode, do they still call it Interface Builder? I think I hear most people call it Interface Builder. But basically the storyboards, you drag and drop and you style things and rename things. Yeah, that makes a whole lot more sense to me because, I mean, that's pretty low-cost stuff. I just make it look how I want to look and make sure it transitions the way I want it to transition when I click on stuff, and then I can work on the underlying programming later. Yeah, although keep in mind it's always a little more complex than that, but it sounds about right. I personally just like to use paper and sketch things out. I'm not really sure why, except maybe that it's physical and I can touch it and I kind of can kind of rearrange th- things with my hands. But even before I start on a storyboard, I'll sketch something out on paper or use something like balsamic or another wireframe mock-up tool. Yeah. But getting into a little more detail on your app, what screens do you think it needs to have? Well, so I want it to have a list of shows. And then if you tap on the show, then it should show a list of episodes. Okay, so you think maybe the fundamental UI, when you just launch the app, the first thing you see, assuming you've already logged in and everything like that, but the first yeah. thing you see is a list of shows. Yeah. That's a table view Yep. in iOS. And then if you click, you know, if you tap on a row in the table and it shows you the detail or, you know, another table with a list of, of episodes or, you know, for an episode detail about that episode, mm-hmm. that kind of where you're pushing, where you're, you're going 
further down in a hierarchy, that is usually done using a UI navigation controller. Mm-hmm. And that storyboards have really nice support for setting up navigation controllers and the flow between different you know, levels of hierarchy in them. So, But knowing that in advance will, will definitely help you structure the application. Yeah. And then the other thing I'm trying to figure out is I would like, for example, for people to be able to interact with the show in other ways. So, you know, they can see the informational details like the description and RSS feed and stuff for the show or be able to leave feedback on the show is something I eventually would like to be able to manage all of that. I mean, for right now, it's, you know, it's just show the content. But, you know, as things go along, you know, there are other options that I would like to explore. And so I'm I'm trying to figure out, okay, do I put buttons on the, you know, the table view in each cell? Or when they tap it, does it have those options along the top? And then, you know, scrollable list of episodes as you go down. And then when you tap an episode, then it shows those options for the episode along with the show notes. Watch out, developers are going to start doing UI now. I know, right? <laughs> it's going to look bad. This is kind of, these are some of the questions that often a designer can answer better than a developer. Uh-huh. Personally, I think having, just on this specific issue, I think having buttons on a table view row is kind of weird. Yeah, I haven't seen it in other apps, so. There are a few apps I can think of that do something like that, but usually the buttons are hidden until you sort of long press on the row. Like I think Twitterific mm-hmm. does yeah, something I've like seen that, it. but. And I'm still scarred. So that's probably not the right approach, as Andrew said. Yeah. You know, press the button on the table view, go to another view, which might initially just be a list of the episodes. Mm-hmm. You know, as you get more functionality, maybe you change that view controller to something else that has more metadata and a list of episodes, something like that. Right. And that's something you can add to and extend as you move forward. Yep. Do you know any designers that you could get involved? Because this is just, for me, it's something I really try to recommend is that, you know, unless you are one of those very rare people that is truly a designer and a developer, and I think there are a lot more that started out as designers and became developers than the other way around. Unless you're one of those people, a designer is usually going to, well, I should say always going to do a better job than you. Now, sometimes it's not in the budget or, you know, you're not trying to make an app that's really widely used or whatever, but if you want users to receive your app well, probably more so on iOS than most other platforms, design is just really important. And that goes beyond just the, the styling, the theming. It's about how the application works. Yeah, I haven't I haven't really thought much about that, but definitely something worth looking into. I would say, well, just hire one of us. But no, definitely don't hire me for that. I am not a designer, and I'm lucky to get to work with some that are that are really good, and our apps are way better for it. Yep. So how do you go about finding a designer? Maybe that's a good question to ask. Well, I'm not sure that's too different from finding a developer or anybody else. You kind of have to look in the places where designers hang out. And, and one, you know, pretty pretty standard popular place is Dribbble. Yep. People post on Dribbble, and so you can find people that sort of specialize in iOS UI design. You can look at apps that you like and see if you can figure out who, who designed them and find people that way. I've done that before. I'm not sure there's just one single answer, you know. Yeah, I I know that for certain applications, I've talked to people and they actually, yeah, they recommend that you go on Dribbble and you find somebody that doesn't have a ton of like stars or hearts or whatever they get on there, but that has done design work that looks like what you want or looks like the thing that you're trying to build. So since they can do the look that you want, you can ask them to do the look that you want for your app. 
Yeah, I think the good thing is, I, I hope I don't offend any designers out there, but the good thing is that usually the design part of an app doesn't maybe doesn't take as long as the development part. And so hopefully designers can sort of have more clients than the average developer. But that said, uh, good designers are like good developers. You email them and say you want some work and they say, I'm booked for the next six months. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'm not familiar with Dribble. How does that work? Do you put out a bid for that? Are they just a listing of people and they have their rates up or they have by project or can you choose by all the, all three of those things? How How do you... So about using Dribble. it's kind of a place for designers to kind of show off their work. I usually don't see them listing prices or anything, but they'll, you know, so they'll say, you know, I, I designed, you know, this thing for this, you know, app. So, you know, maybe I designed this app or I designed these icons or I, you know, I okay, did so like an online of... portfolio, something like that. Right. And then there are ways to reach out to them through Dribble. Okay, so it's not, the, not a fancy O-Desk. It's just a way to see who's out there, what they've done. Right. The tagline is, Dribble is show and tell for designers. Yep. And I think there is a Hire Me link on, on somebody's profile. Like if they've said that they're available for contract work, they'll have a Hire Me link. But it's not really fundamentally a marketplace for designers. It's a, it's a show and tell, but it's the most popular one. So you yep. find a lot of people. And you can search by category. You know, we, some people do print design, some people do web design, some people do iOS, some people do icon design. There's all kinds of sort of specialties that you can narrow down to find people. And it's Dribble with for those that are it listening. It has three Bs, yeah. Yeah, it's three Bs. Dribble with three Bs in the middle. There's some pretty awesome work on there. I've looked more in the web area world than I have for iOS. So that's actually an interesting thing. I, I don't think this is universally true. I certainly wouldn't want to blanket make a blanket statement, but I think in general, somebody who's only done web design coming over to iOS doesn't necessarily work that well yeah. because web and iOS are really different platforms. And I think it's best if you can find somebody who's actually done iOS UI design. I mean, of course, people start somewhere, and web developers could certainly get good at iOS design, but you probably don't want to be somebody's very first iOS project. Yeah, but it does occur to me that a well-thought-out design, maybe with some some stuff that I wouldn't have thought of on my own, would definitely, you know, be good. Because, I mean, there may be ways to slide in or slide out or, you know, touch it in a specific way or interact with it in a specific way that makes it more than just a list of media. Yep. Okay, so what else is there to this app that you want to implement and don't really know how? So one of the things, I mean, I want an audio player in there. And I know that there are APIs that make that reasonably simple. Yeah, so if you're just playing local audio, it's quite simple. Like like it's like two lines of code, you know, at, at the very simplest to just load up a file and start playing it. Mm-hmm. Streaming gets a little possibly more difficult, but but if you can, you know, download a file first before you start playing it, which is I think probably a, a valid option. There are full-on podcast apps that do that and don't support streaming. Um, but anyway, if you can do that, playback is usually not a not a hugely difficult thing to implement, at least nowadays. That was different, you know, five years ago. But Yeah, the other part of that, though, is when do I stream versus when do I download? Because obviously I don't want to download all of the episodes of all of the shows because that would fill up somebody's phone. So I, I could would say you're probably not streaming a whole lot. You might want to sample something, but... You know, if I get my podcast app that I use, I download it yeah. because I'm leaving somewhere where I probably don't have Wi-Fi and I don't really want to put that on my on my cell bill. So you're probably creating some way to download the app or maybe preview it. 
you know, by stream, stream a little bit, but probably, you know, downloading it and getting a list of what you've downloaded and being able to play it. Yeah, same with me. I actually use Overcast, Marco Arment's podcast app, which is, mm-hmm. I think, a really popular podcast app on iOS now. It is. And, and it does not support streaming. You have to download an episode. Of course, there are smart features, and like when you finish listening to an episode, it, it will delete it and things like that, so you don't fill up the space on your device. But I actually don't think streaming is a vital feature, even for a, like a real full-on general-purpose podcast app. And it certainly makes implementing the whole thing easier, which I'm sure is why he hasn't done that. I, I think it's com- he said it's coming in, a, in an upcoming release, but he left it out for a reason, and I think you probably should too, at least in 1.0. Yeah. The the other question I have, though, then is, can I start downloading and then after a few minutes start playing while it's still downloading the rest of the episode? Well, that is a very good question. I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, fundamentally, I mean, there's that's really what streaming is, right? You're mm-hmm. downloading a little bit, playing it while yeah. you continue to download more. So I would say that it, my guess is that that's harder than it sounds, but I'm not I wouldn't swear to it. It's possible. You know, if it's mm-hmm. depending on the format, I think it's something you can do. Do you want to do it? You know, waiting. You know, it doesn't take that long to download a podcast on a reasonable Wi-Fi connection. Yep. Here's another one that I'm thinking about, and that is that I would like to be able to have people, for example, tap the episode and then tap some button that allows them to record feedback during or you know after the show. So you know. Is it tricky to really be able to get something recorded to the device and then from there, you know, put it into an audio format that I can upload somewhere else? No, I don't think that's difficult. Recording is is just about as easy as playback and uploading files to web services, obviously quite doable and not particularly difficult. I mean, you you have some difficulty if files are really big because you have to deal with, as with any networking, you got to deal with uploads getting interrupted or the Mm -hmm. app going into the background, things like that. But it's all very well studied and lots of people have done it and you can find lots of resources. So what you're telling me is, is that my only impediment to this is knowing what I want it to look like and then understanding the APIs that make it really simple to do this stuff. Yeah, but that's true of all development, right? No, I'm I'm just kidding. But yeah, I I think that's that's basically true. Of course, it's 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 like any programming. You'll get into it, and there'll be some hang up that you didn't expect, and you'll spend longer than you thought you would implementing mm-hmm. something. But eh, that's the way it goes, right? Yep. Is there a standard RSS library for iOS? Hmm, not built in, I don't think. But I'm sure there's people out there doing that. Of course, RSS is pretty easy to parse yourself. Yes, that's true. I'm going to make a bold statement and say, yes, there's something out there. Well, I'm well, sure. I, I don't know sure, what it is, though. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's something out there. But but built into the system, I don't think there is. But I'm sure there are. But there's some CocoaPod or something that I can right. drop in and makes it simple. In fact, I just searched on CocoaPods, and there's a whole list of RSS, this and that. So, yeah. Is this too ambitious for my first, like, real intense iOS project? Yeah, I don't think so. I think it's actually a pretty good, you know, pretty um, standard seeming. Like the UI is pretty normal for an iOS app. It's got some pretty normal kinds of things in it, so it shouldn't be some overwhelming thing. Yeah, even like the first task, logging in and seeing a list of podcasts. You know, pretty doable. Yep. And nothing that we've talked about in this episode is is beyond Stack Overflow. You know, this is all pretty well covered. So when you Google a question, you'll probably get three or four questions on Stack Overflow that give you the answer. 
I think the table view with a list of things that have been fetched from a web service after logging in is quite possibly the most common paradigm for an iOS app out there. Yeah. It's sort of like the cliche, right? Well, right. And the thing is, is that, you know, if for at least for content producers, I mean, that's mostly what you're going to be providing people with is a list of the stuff that you made. Um, yep. If you're looking at, you know, other applications where, you know, you're actually managing munging or otherwise modifying data that may or may not originate on the web, I mean, then your algorithms might get a little more involved, but then you're moving away from content creation and more toward functionality. Now, does iOS, I know that it provides like some transitions that are animated. Is there a good list of those or? Yeah, that's actually a good question. There are animations that are provided by the system that are sort of the built-in default ones. I think generally you want to stick with those, but things like when you tap on a on a table item and it goes to a, you know, a detail view and you see it sort of slide from right to left, that's just mm-hmm. built in, you get it for free. Uh, other things where like you present a view and it slides up from the bottom. There's also support for programmatically doing your own transition animations that's quite powerful. And sometimes, you know, if you see an app that's really like heavily customized and has lots of custom animation, that takes some work to do those custom animations. But most of the the stuff that you see really commonly is all just built in. One other thing that I'm wondering about is as I pull information from the API and put it onto the device, am I going to need something like Core Data to do that? Or are there simpler ways of doing it? Oh, this is the age-old question. So if you need to store stuff locally that you've pulled down from the API instead of just fetching it at at launch every single time, you probably don't want to fetch it from launch. I mean, for one, at launch, because for one thing, that means your app won't work offline. Anyway, if you if you want to store it, oh, there's at this point there are kind of a million options. Core data is sort of the I don't know. That's the Apple way. There are ways to do that that are that are simpler than core data, but they tend to not scale that well. Things like just saving the data out to a plist file, that will get slow fairly fast and has some other limitations. Core data, though, has a reputation as being pretty complex and lots of sharp edges and not exactly beginner-friendly. I tend to, I don't know, roll my eyes at some of that. Maybe it's just because I've been using it for so long, but we've talked about some of these on the show. Realm is another option. Uh, FMDB is an option if you just want to use a SQLite database to store your stuff. FMDB is just an Objective-C wrapper for SQLite, basically. That makes using it pretty pretty nice and pretty easy. If, if you've already got SQL experience, that's not a bad way to go. It kind of depends on the feature set you, you really need for your persistence, because Core Data does some sophisticated stuff that you don't necessarily need, like relationship management, automatic undo-redo, and that kind of thing. And it may be that when you're really basically just storing a, a fairly simple set of tables, SQLite is the easier way to go, particularly if you've already got that experience in your background, which I assume you do. Yeah. And then as far as synchronizing things, just make sure that it has the same identifier on both the server and the and the device so that it can say, okay, this is the new version of this show or this episode so that, you know, anything that has to be changed, corrected or whatever. Yeah, so you kind of have to work that out no matter what you do for persistence, right? Yep. None of that's just done for you unless you're using one of the sort of back-end as a service kind of systems like Parse. Or, uh, that, that's true. I guess those would do that for you, wouldn't they? But you've already got an existing database, right? Yep. So if, if a resource changes in the existing system, how do you flag an update? Well, 
in the existing system on the web, it you just refresh the page. Okay, so just load it down, load everything from scratch. Okay, yeah. so you're not doing any polling. No, I mean you can you can set a date updated. Yes, I can set know, all of that stuff. That kind of stuff. So it, it's up to you. At this point, we're beyond Stack Overflow as far as getting good advice. But. Yeah, but I can set up the API endpoint so that it's since you know changes since the last update or stuff mm-hmm. like that, and then I can make the backend service just smart enough to do that fast. Some of this gets tr- tricky kind of quickly, though, if you're doing some of the stuff you talked about, like allowing user comments and ratings and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Then you're kind of going beyond just a canonical master list of content on the server, and you're having to actually send stuff up from clients and then sync that back down to other clients. And um, I mean, that's all completely doable. Obviously, people do it, but it may require some adjustment of your back end and a more sophisticated system on the client. That's fair. Those are 2.0 features, though. Yeah, good choice. The other feature I think might be fun as just kind of a social thing that I could build into the site itself is that people could take a picture of themselves. You know, so it's a selfie, but it's where I'm listening now or something. And so they can take a picture in the gym or on the trail or, you know, if they're listening while walking down the street in some, you know, in Paris or something, you know, so they can take a picture with the Eiffel Tower in the background or something. I don't want any toilet pictures, but, you know. Yeah. That's a separate separate topic, how to keep the toilet pictures out of there. That's true. But I could have that sent down to a back-end service and then, you know, have some approval and then hope that people are nice. At the beginning, everyone's nice. But make that kind of a social thing, push it to Instagram, something like that. But, yeah, I would like to also use this as a mechanism to provide more subscription content. And I think the authentication stuff is pretty much all I need there. And I'm not even that concerned with people stealing. So if somebody gets somebody's email and password, I mean, that's all the information that's on there. There's a Stripe token that's on there. But unless you're getting into the system where you can actually see the public and private key, you can't really do anything with that. And there's not any other personally identifying information that I collect. Nobody's privacy is going to get violated, and nobody's credit card is going to get compromised by that. Now, if I need to modify the table view, like let's say on the show list I want to put an image from the show in the cell, I can just stick that in there with Interface Builder, right? Yeah, that's true. And and actually, though, the default table cells, like unconfigured table cells, have an image and a text label. Those are sort of the two things that you just automatically get free is an, an image over on mm-hmm. the left and some text but if you want to change the way that's laid out or add additional lines of text or more images or whatever yeah you, you can do that in, in interface builder it's all quite supported yep so i guess the last part of this is i mean i've kind of started a couple of tutorials but haven't ever finished them so i have the ray wenderlich essentials ios essentials i think is what it's called and then i've watched some others I'm kind of tempted to just take a class, um, but I'm trying to decide if that's worth it or if I can just watch some videos. I have a Linda subscription that I could watch it on, watch their course on, or, you know, the books from Ray Winderlick, like I said. I mean, are there any sort of, you know, iOS tutorials that people tout as the, the one to do? Well, I certainly think Ray Winderlick's stuff is really popular. Personally, I learn best from books, and I learned this stuff before there were a million online courses and video tutorials and tutorial sites and boot camps and blah, 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 and I just learned from books and screwing around until I got things right. But I think the Stanford courses on iTunes U are 
well-regarded. So Stanford University has a iOS programming class that they've done for quite a few years now, and, and they put the content up on iTunes U, and it, it, they, they've kept it up to date every year. So I think what's there now is all in Swift and using the latest APIs. So that that's a good one. I actually, I probably have never mentioned it on the show, but I actually teach once a week part-time at a boot camp here in Salt Lake called Dev Mountain for iOS development. It's not a free thing by any means, but it's a sort of 12-week intensive course and yeah, I'm not. That's up an for option for people. Boot and, camp. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't. For you, probably not. But that's certainly a way people learn. Yeah. Uh, I think the very most important thing when you're learning, no matter what way you're learning, whether it's books or tutorials or a boot camp or a class or whatever, is you have to have something you care about that you want to build and dive in and build it. You know, you learn the most by actually trying and making mistakes and having to figure out and struggle how to do through how to do something that you care about. So. That's my own feeling anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely recommend jumping in if that's your learning style. I mean, for me, it's like I guess this project is something I want to do. I don't spend a lot of time. I'm going to watch this online video for an hour. I do some of that, but if I want to learn something, I kind of get in there and just start hacking away, try and solve the problem and figure out what I don't know right away. Yep. As the experienced iOS people or Objective-C Mac type people, what what is he missing? What what, what questions is he not asking? Yeah, that's a good question. He he won't know until he actually gets into it, but that's actually a little bit hard to say cuz he, you know, we we talk sort of in high-level terms and there are all these specifics, the nitty-gritty of how to use these APIs and how Objective-C or Swift works and all that that it's a little hard to just sit back and say, "Well, here's everything you need to know," right? Mm-hmm. Cuz there's too much of it. But one thing I was thinking, you know, how do you do networking? You, know, you go with the old standby app networking. Now Apple's got the the newer one. So you you make a call with that and both are fine options. Um, I tend to go with the Apple stock Apple versions now, the NSURL session. Yeah, I mentioned that a little at the beginning, but NSURL session is what I would use. I never used AF networking because I was already using the old APIs that were, you know, that predated AF networking by a long time. But either one would be a, a decent choice. I'm not sure AF networking provides a whole lot of benefit for Chuck in this situation because some of the stuff that it still does that's nice on top of NSURL session is not really anything that he's worried about. Things like, um, ca- you know, caching images and all that kind of stuff that it can do. Yeah, I think, yeah, the AF networking is mainly inertia because it was so much better than the Apple libraries for a long time. Not for a long time, a couple of years maybe, which is a long time. But I think that's probably most people's default approach. I think it's changing a little bit now. But So if you talk to someone else, they're like, oh yeah, just use, just use AF networking. Or I, kinda, I use the stock stock libraries, if, if at all possible. That certainly brings up a point that we could have an entire show on, which is third-party libraries versus just using Apple's libraries and writing stuff yourself. And I sort of fall probably too far on the don't use third-party libraries side. But another thing that actually came to mind, it's the thing that I forgot when I said I had something, is that you already have paid subscriptions. And mm-hmm. you probably know that Apple offers a in-app purchase subscription. Yeah, system. I don't want to do that. I don't want to give up 30% to Apple. Well, you give up 30%, and the other thing is, but the thing to know is, uh, unless you use that, you cannot offer subscriptions in the app. So they have to sign up on your website. I'm completely okay with that. Yeah, but it is a tightrope you have to walk, where you can tell people that you have a website, but you can't say subscribe here. Right. You have them log in. But, no, it works yeah. fine, especially for you know services that are already, that are already well established as having a subscription People already know, of course, that they can subscribe. That's why they're downloading your apps, probably because they're a subscriber. But 
you'll quickly get rejected by Apple if you have a big subscribe here button that just links to your website. Yeah, I know that the subscribe here stuff is at least frowned upon, if not completely off limits. But at the same time, you know, I can, you know, if they get to an episode that's a subscription-only episode, and I hate the term subscribe now because you can subscribe to a podcast and that's free, or you can subscribe to a service and you have to pay. So if they're subscribed to the video series, or if they're not subscribed to the video series, I can just say this requires a Rails Clip subscription. And then if they reject it because I say you can subscribe at this website, then I'll just take that off and hopefully people are smart enough to go Google Rails Clips. That's pretty much what you have to do. I guess the other thing to consider there too is I am considering some possibilities with streaming and I'm trying to figure out the details on how to make HTTP live streaming work because it doesn't seem like you can just point it at a file on the internet and say, live stream that or stream that or stream this. Yeah, I don't know the process exactly, but you slice the files up some way and there's a yeah. one standard format you can put them on onto your website that you know, the system understands where to get it and how to upload it. I've never done it, so that's about the extent of my knowledge on that, but definitely doable. Yeah. There are multiple ways to do streaming and even HTTP live streaming, but I think HTTP live streaming is basically an, an Apple technology, right? So I think, I, I'm not going to swear to this, somebody would, you know, somebody listening probably knows I'm wrong, but I, I sort of think that AV Foundation has pretty easy built-in support for HTTP live streaming. Yeah, and it looks like just Googling, there's an Nginx module for it. So you can put your files behind Nginx and then set up HTTP live streaming or HLS on that. Any other gotchas that I'm going to run into with this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we're not going to tell you. That's part of the fun, right? I actually just looked it up, and AV Foundation does let you do streaming of HTTP live streaming-based content, and it's pretty easy. You basically just give it a URL and then create an AV player just like you would if it was a local file and tell it to start playing. Cool. Well, should we get to some picks? Let's pick. Sounds good. All right, James, what are your picks? Okay, I've got one pick today. I had uh, set a DVD on my Netflix queue. I still do DVDs, which is kind of odd in this day and age. But I got a DVD that had been in my queue for a while, and I finally watched it. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, pretty entertaining. Not too long, about 90 minutes. It's a documentary about street art. It's done by Banksy, or related to Banksy somehow. But it tells the story of a, this person who just got to start filming the various street artists in the early 2000s. And the documentary is actually about the person doing the filming, which is kind of a weird turn of events. So the movie itself is Exit Through the Gift Shop. I enjoyed it. I wouldn't read too much up on the people involved with it, which might kind of spoil the surprise a little bit, because I don't know that much about street art. So I was, I was watching the movie not knowing that much about the people involved, but very entertaining. Yeah. Exit Through the Gift Shop. Plus one. I really like that. That actually premiered at Sundance a few years ago, and, and Banksy came to town for the premiere and did some art around Salt Lake and Park City, and some of it is gone now because it got removed you know, by anti-graffiti. In fact, I have an interesting story about a friend encountering the people trying to – or scrubbing his art off one of the walls and trying to stop them, and they're like, eh, we have a job to do. We don't care what this is, even though it's probably worth $100,000 or something. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a, it, that was, a, it was an interesting and surprising and entertaining movie. I liked it. All right. Andrew, what are your picks? I just have one pick today, and it's kind of an abstract pick. And it is just 
learning something new. I have sort of felt the itch to learn something new for a little while, and I decided about a week ago that I kind of wanted to just figure out what Node.js is all about. And of course, you, Chuck, already know a fair amount about it, but I had never looked at it before in my life. I've dabbled with JavaScript now and then and kind of hated it, but so I played around and I was able to do some pretty cool stuff just in a you know a few hours of, of learning and playing around and I'm pretty impressed. It makes me want to learn more and it just sort of expanded my horizons and I think that happens anytime you try to learn something new, whether it's a new technology or a new skill or a new hobby or something. There's a lot of value there even beyond the thing itself. So go out and learn something new. Yeah, JavaScript is permeating everything, really. I still am not impressed with the language. I think it's kind of junky, but <laughs> the you know the fact that there's such an ecosystem around it is pretty yeah. cool. You know, Andrew, no one's impressed with the cockroach either. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but it'll be here longer than us. <laughs> right. All right. Well, I've got a couple of picks here. The first one is, I don't know if you guys have read uh, the Michael Vay books by Richard Paul Evans. I've kind of been enjoying them. They're not the most sophisticated books ever. But, you know, they're entertaining and uh, fun to read. And the fifth book just came out. So I'm going to pick that because I've just, you know, sometimes I just need some downtime and I get out some fiction and there we go. The next pick that I have is uh, just getting outside and moving. So it's another one of those, you know, like go learn something. Um, but at the same time, uh, I went golfing with my father-in-law on Monday. It was his birthday and, you know, it was a lot of fun, but I just felt so good after you know, being outside for a few hours and chasing a little ball with the big stick. It was just nice. So I'm, I'm going to pick that as well. Vitamin D, it's a thing. Yeah. It's good for you. All right. Well, I don't think there's anything else we need to talk about. So we'll go ahead and wrap up the show and we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash forum. 